Hey guys, before we get to today's show, just a quick programming note. This is the last episode of 2022. I'll be taking the next couple weeks off to kind of recharge, hang out with the kids, eat too much food, open some presents, etc. Or actually, watch my kids open some presents. But I digress. But I want to take a moment to thank you for listening, for all the ratings and reviews, for the downloads. Uh, you know, I've been doing this pod for over five years now, and we are rapidly closing in on 300 episodes, which is pretty amazing given that we started this as as a bit of an experiment. So thank you all for listening. I really appreciate it. And uh, as I hope you can tell, I really enjoy doing it. Also wanted to give a big shout out to producer Daisy for making sure the pods sound good and show up on time, week in, week out. She is a true pro and you are all the beneficiaries. So thank you, Daisy. Anyhow, I hope you managed to get to get some rest and relaxation in over the holidays. The pod will be back in the first week of Jan. But now let's get to the last show of 2022. Here it is. Yo. Technology. What is it all about? The world is now competing for our brain power mm -hmm. in a really intense way. Social media is a horrible example and instantiation of that. So... I think we're basically just in like a cognitive overload in society. So to me, it makes sense that we'd be finally diagnosing or seeing this come out of the woodwork. Hello and welcome to Danny in the Valley, your weekly dispatch from behind the scenes and inside the minds of the top people in tech this week. We have a truly fascinating guest. Eddie Martucci is the founder of Achille Interactive, which was, which has the distinction of making the first video game to be approved by the Food and Drug Administration as a treatment for ADHD. It's quite a story, and Martucci has been working on this for a decade, and after finally getting it approved by the FDA, he's really just started building up a sales team and trying to get this game, which targets an area of the brain that affects focus, trying to get it out into the market, approved by insurers, and really spreading the word that if your child does have ADHD, which is about 10% of the population, that there is an alternative to pills. So it's just a fascinating founder story, and it's also very pertinent, given that we're just so assaulted every day by all things digital via our smartphones, etc. This game, which is called Endeavor RX, meets kids where they are. I just think it's a really, it's a great idea that is backed up with enough science that it convinced the authorities to actually give it their seal of approval, which is no small thing. And according to Martucci, this is kind of the tip of the iceberg. This could be the first of many digital treatments that may take their place alongside pills and more traditional approaches to everything from multiple sclerosis to depression. So exciting times. They're kind of uh, the first ones out there. And what you're about to hear is how they managed it. So you'll enjoy this one. And if any of you know anyone who has kids with ADHD, please pass this along. If they don't know about uh, Endeavor RX, uh, imagine they'll want to. And it's just a fun story. So please share it around. And Merry Christmas. Happy New Year. And here he is, Eddie Martucci of Achille Interactive. Enjoy. Can you just high level talk about what Achille is, what Endeavor is, and then I'd like to go backward because it feels like you've been working on this for a long time and it's obviously, it's a, it's a pretty non-obvious 
Well, it's more obvious today than it probably was 10 years ago <laughs> when you started on this. But I'd love to just talk about, yeah, just high level kind of what you're up to, what you've achieved thus far, and then we can kind of go backward. I love that you said that, by the way, because, man, when we were first starting this, people like, you know, their face crunched up, they raised their eyebrows, they're like, what? But now they're like, of course you guys have this. Why isn't there more? So Endeavor RX uh, is our first product out of our platform, which I can tell you about. And it is a treatment for children with ADHD. It's the first treatment of any class of treatment that is prescription video game. Right. Um, and so this is a treatment that's been developed over about a decade of clinical research, proven through clinical trials to treat ADHD children's attention issues. And so we brought it through clinical trials through the FDA. So it's got an FDA treatment mm-hmm. label, just like other therapeutics. And it's now being prescribed by docs in all 50 states across the country, which is pretty exciting. So we we started with a big tagline internally where we used to say, play your medicine. That would be awesome in the future to play your medicine. Now yeah. docs are prescribing and patients are actually doing that. And so that that's Endeavor RX. And then we have, we've built at Achilles really a platform to be able to do many of these types of therapeutics and monitoring devices entirely through digital means. What is that platform? Like, what does that look like? So it's essentially based off of, we have a couple different technologies, but our main technology is based off of research from UCSF, actually, a well-known neuroscientist named uh, Dr. Adam Ghazali, that is a really sensitive way to measure and treat cognitive issues, meaning mm-hmm. how the brain's processing information by a really specific mix of sensory stimulus and motor stimulus. So basically lots of things that you can pop up on a screen and make someone do on their screen, on their phone or their their tablet. It's designed to activate the part of the brain that controls attention functioning. And so this is, we've actually seen clinical results from a couple different formats. We put most of our products into things that feel like video games, but we've seen a couple different formats where this core technology is able to stimulate that part of the brain controlling attention and, and lead to some pretty cool results. So I have a bunch of questions about how that actually works. But if we could go back to again, to, I think you started the company is it in 2012. Is that right? Yeah. And going back in time, 11 years or almost 11 years, 10 years, a decade. Obviously, the iPhone was around, it had been around for four or five years. But you know, I think I can't remember when Facebook bought Instagram. But it was in the, I think 2012, maybe might have been that same year. I can't remember, maybe a bit earlier. I think it was after we started. I think yeah. it was after we started. And, you know, Snapchat was just getting going around the same time. Uh, TikTok did not exist, et cetera, et cetera. Like, you know, it was kind of, we were, social media was becoming this force, but it was still pretty early days given to where we have right. got to now. So I'm just wondering when you kind of, when you talk about how you're like, you know, was the pitch always the pitch? And why did you make that pitch 10 years ago? Because it does feel like um, it was a must have been a kind of bizarre idea for most people when you started thinking about this, you know, to a decade ago. Yeah, it was it was bizarre for a lot. I mean, we have good examples of, you know, people laughing at us or saying, really, you're going to make Pac-Man into medicine, you know, like really cheeky comments and stuff. Do you have one skeptic or one vignette that has stuck with you from all the from those early days? <laughs> 
You've got to I, have, you, I'm got, sure you have a few, but is there one that you, that you I'm not going to mention, I'm not going to mention them, but I I've got issues, man. When I love when people are skeptical or when they really try to dish on you, it like embeds in my memory. So yeah, I've got, I've got a couple of visuals of people who were like, this is really stupid. Why would you spend your time on this? And, um, you know, that, that becomes a, a target for proving them wrong. Right. Totally. Totally. So to your question on the pitch and what we were selling, Often people talk about us from that end product perspective, like, yeah. oh, a video game to treat disease X, but that's actually not how we started. So our pitch and what we've always been doing in this business is really trying to address what we saw as a massive problem in treatments for the brain. That's mm -hmm. literally where we started. Right. So back in 2012, and even a couple of years before that, when I started looking at this and thinking about this concept with some of my co-founders, really the issue was twofold. We now talk about we have a mental health crisis, right? We have a big issue in how yeah. we treat the brain. The same issues were known back in that time and people weren't getting help. And actually at that point in time, pharmaceutical companies were pulling out of mental and behavioral health. So there was almost like this chasm or, or whatever valley of death being created where there was no new innovation for the brain. Why were they pulling out? Uh, they're really hard. It's really hard to develop new molecules for the brain. They're very unsafe. And so a lot of a lot of these products fail in clinical trials for safety reasons. That's actually the biggest reason that these products fail. It's really hard to target the mm. brain with receptor-based pharmacology, you know, ingesting something and hope it hits yeah. the brain in the right way. Because the brain still remains kind of a black box. It's sort of. I don't know. Yes, it's the most black box thing that we have in our body for yeah. sure. But we actually now, that this was really the insight of starting the company, we actually know how to target the brain at a functional level because we've had enough experience in understanding what types of experience and visuals do to the brain. Hmm. That has nothing to do with targeting the brain through molecules that you ingest, right? So I would argue it's a big black box if you're trying to take a molecule and hope that it gets to the brain in a good way. Yeah. It's still a black box, but less so or more contained if you can do it through functional targeting, like through experience, through something you interact with. Right. Um, because that's basically what we've been doing for millennia, right? We've been creating things that we interact with to have an effect in someone's brain, which then affects their life, right? Music, art personal experiences. So the issue we saw was actually twofold. If, if we back all the way up to the pitch, the first big issue in what's been become this crisis is there's essentially the way we treat brain health is extremely limited. We essentially have drugs, mm -hmm. which as we've just talked about are not well targeted, but they, they do work for some issues, but they, they also have safety issues and we have behavioral therapy. But the truth is, Almost no one in the grand scheme of things can get good behavioral therapy. And now we have a massive shortage of behavioral therapists. So the truth is the way we treat brain health is essentially one modality. It's drugs, which we've kind of discussed are not optimal. They're good, yeah. but they're not optimal. They're not the whole story. And you're seeing that play out right now. What happens when you only have one modality and people really need stuff? You get things like overprescription crises. You get things like companies that abuse the system and, you know, put controlled medications into people's hands like crazy. It's it's not good. The other issue we saw is how we treat brain disorders. So that was like the way we treat it. But then how we treat it from a mechanistic level is crazy outdated. So what most of the previous treatment approaches focus on are these classical symptoms of 
the disorder. The main reason is that's what we always knew about the disorders of the brain or conditions of the brain because they're the most overt, but it's also what drugs are the best at. So for instance, sadness and depression yeah, or hyperactivity and ADHD, a kid getting out of his or her seat. Those are the things you readily observe. Mm-hmm. And so like, hey, can we change them? It turns out for some of those really overt things, you can change them with molecules pretty powerfully. But what we're finally realizing, I think now with this kind of rebirth and, and destigmatization of mental health is many times those are not the actual things that are limiting people in daily life. So our insight was if you really listen to patients, what a lot of patients are talking about are things like, I'm having trouble functioning at work. <laughs> yeah. I'm having trouble thinking or, or being sharp or paying attention when I need to. And that's actually the core. So these cognitive issues are the core for a lot of people. It's either the main thing they deal with, or it's at least a major component of what they deal with. And the truth is, historically in medicine, we don't target those things well at all. We don't have specific approaches for targeting these cognitive issues. So our pitch at Achilles is we want to take a swing that hits all of those issues at the same time, Mm. introduce a new modality that is much safer than existing treatments, that is much more accessible than existing behavioral treatments, that's super adaptive and data-rich because it can be personalized, that actually targets the cognitive functioning, and then the icing on top, not the core, but the icing on top is we can deliver it through a game, so it can actually be kind of fun. And so that's kind of how we've always built this story. And what is your background? Where are you, what angle are you coming at this from? So I'm actually trained as a biochemist, biophysicist. So I have a PhD from Yale doing like drug design and, mm-hmm. and protein crystallography and like really in-depth work about how do you target certain biological systems in the body. But I got enamored when I was in grad school with this idea of like translating science, like building mm-hmm. it into, into new things. But I actually, I think it was that kind of like, I will call it hardcore scientific training that I think has kindled in me this passion. Like everything I worked with a company called pure tech health out of Boston. That's where I founded Achille and I was co-founder of a couple other companies. And the things that get me most fired up are like applying deep science to areas that people traditionally think don't have deep science or don't need it. So video games or digital technologies. Right. Um, so that's, that's really my background. And, and I think, Honestly, as long as you develop something really carefully and you study it, you know, mechanistically and with deep science and you have the right technology, anything can be a validated medicine. You say you've co-founded a couple other companies. Do you come from like a, um, a family of founders or entrepreneurial kind of what's, what's your background like? You know, not many people kind of just like happen into founding companies, especially in really hard technical areas. Yeah. So um, my mom and dad owned one of the last independent pharmacies in Connecticut. So not in, you wouldn't call it like the innovation type startup world, yeah, but definitely yeah, yeah. A, a hard kind of slugfest of a world. Yeah, so they- Holding out against Walgreens and CVS, et cetera. Totally. And eventually CVS bought Martucci's Family Pharmacy was the mm. name of it. Um, but yeah, I grew up in that far. I mean, I grew up, you know, laying the floor for the pharmacy with my parents when oh, I was wow. probably about 10. And uh, I grew up working the register and doing deliveries. And, and it was kind of cool because I got to see a different view of the healthcare system from, you know, behind the, the counter at a pharmacy. And I got to see my parents bust their butts for, you know, yeah. over a decade to try to grow and compete. And they did um, in central Connecticut. So that's, it's funny because it wasn't until very recently 
that I kind of look back and realize, oh yeah, there is like a pretty strong analogy there. Well, I was going to say, I mean, yeah. And also just being on that kind of that coal face of medicines and kind of getting them to people in the real world and seeing if they work. And, you know, that, that feels like, you know, that must've been ingrained quite early. I think so. I mean, I, I can vividly remember, and it, I, it still happens today. Obviously the pharmacy world has evolved a lot since I was a kid, but I think it still happens. Uh, pharmacists are still one of the most trusted professions yeah. by patients because that's where they really have the dialogue around, Hey, should I take this? What does this mean for me? Are there other things? Like a lot of people don't feel comfortable asking that of their doctor. And so I, I vividly remember being in our pharmacy and these kind of deep discussions around what does this exactly mean? How does this work? Why does it work? Are you sure I have to take it? And, and my dad is kind of like a really biochemistry junkie. So he loved, you know, going deep on the science with right. anyone who wanted to listen. So yeah, I was like, by osmosis, I kind of got all of that <laughs> as I was like sweeping the floors in the back, right? <laughs> right, 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 right. And so when you started, you mentioned something, you know, play your medicine back in 2012. And I understand kind of like the scaffolding of the idea, but was it always like, yeah, we are going to kind of, did you immediately land on video games as the right kind of delivery factor? Or like, how did you get there? And then we can get into a little bit of like, you know, what it actually does in terms of like how it affects the brain and attention. I can't remember how quickly, but I would say pretty quickly. Hmm. So we were looking at different technologies. We founded the company before we had a specific technology. I just thought the idea was big enough, you know, credit PureTech for being willing to invest in it when it was a kernel of an idea. And I was talking to neuroscientists all over the country and, and some international to try to understand, all right, what is the state of the art in terms of sensory stimulus that you could, you know, yeah. give through a phone or a screen and, and activate. So there were some concepts that were non-video game, but I think as we started to think about what an ideal product would look like, it would have to do what humans can't, which is deploy things really, really quickly. It would have to have enough engagement that you could do something hard because if it's easy, you're not stressing the system. Ideally, it could adapt really quickly You start to understand, all right, the, the ideal delivery vehicle for all of those things is a fast paced incentivized experience or a game. Yeah. Um, and then I met Adam Ghazali, uh, the researcher at UCSF, neuroscientist, and he had already landed there, but from a totally different perspective. He was studying this very specific circuitry in the brain and was thinking about how do I best get people to do something that can activate. So from a very specific, I was at macro, like, you know, without a technology, what yeah. would I want? And then he was coming from his very specific research and how to activate this really specific part of the brain. And he landed on, hey, a rudimentary video game probably makes the most sense. So I met him as he had developed that rudimentary game. And that was, you know, nail in the coffin or whatever the analogy is where we I don't think we looked back from there. We said a video game makes the most sense. Plus, two of my co-founders I brought on were career video game designers. So I think mm. we we made the choice pretty early. Um, well, so that was going to what I was going to ask around, you know, how do you go about producing the game or kind of creating the product? And I guess that gets to the question of kind of when we're talking about ADHD, I have a bunch of questions, one of which is, you know, it feels like it's it was either radically underdiagnosed back in the day or <laughs> maybe it's overdiagnosed now, but it certainly feels a lot more present in the world yep. than it used to. And I don't know if that's actually backed up by the data, but that's how it feels. And I don't know if you have a sense of that. 
but then you know kind of talking about what adhd is and how you've built this game to kind of push the certain buttons within the brain to actually kind of calm it down if that's what it does sure i think it's well known and and studied in the literature that adhd diagnosis has increased for sure and especially from the early 2000s to the last few years there's essentially like doubling of yeah. of the rate of diagnosis. That said, most of the epidemiology research is clear that it is not overdiagnosed. So we're just finally, we are properly diagnosing it here mm. in the US because you're seeing all over the world, other countries diagnose it more and it's catching up. And there's US and Israel and a couple other countries that actually diagnose at roughly this level. It's in the, depending on the data source, like eight to 11% of kids. And then less than that, but still a substantial percent of adults as well right. continue to have ADHD. I think it's driven by two things. I think it's recognition, right? When we were kids, we didn't think much about mental health and behavioral conditions. And you'd, you know, probably put kids in the corner and, you know, say they're misbehaving. Right. Um, so I think it's just evolution of like, hey, let's really pay attention to the brain. But I think the other thing is ADHD is a functional condition, meaning it has to do with what function do you need to perform and the demands of having to pay attention, right? It's an attention disorder. The demands of having to sit still and pay attention are bigger than they've ever been. One, because we have a more structured, busy society, but two, yeah. everything competing for your attention has grown by like an order of magnitude. When we were growing up, we did not have phone. I mean, I'm sitting here talking to you on a computer I've got texts coming in on my phone that I'm trying not to look at. There's, you know, there's totally. things popping up on my computer. This was never a world that we were in. The world is now competing for our brain power mm -hmm. in a really intense way. Social media is a horrible example and instantiation of that. So I think we're basically just in like a cognitive overload in society. So to me, it makes sense that we'd be finally diagnosing or seeing this come out of the woodwork. I don't think it's overdiagnosed. I think it's in most cases properly diagnosed for kids that have and adults that really are struggling in society. How does one know that, you know, what is ADHD? I mean, because I think it's kind of mm -hmm. like, you know, to a degree, you can kind of be like, well, that kid looks like he has ADHD or not. If it's like a super hyper kid who can't sit still and can't pay attention, for example. But like, what is the clinical kind of threshold? And then getting to the product you guys have created, what is it seeking to do or what does it achieve? Yeah, it's interesting because those the answers to those two questions are not perfectly aligned. Mm. And I'll tell you why. So the diagnostic criteria, this is where the world of mental health has just come worlds. It's come yeah. so far in the last decade or two. So there's very clear diagnostic criteria now for legitimate diagnoses of these conditions like ADHD. There's questionnaires, very specific symptoms that are measured. You have to demonstrate it in more than one setting. So, you know, a child that doesn't like to pay attention to Mrs. Smith specifically probably doesn't have ADHD. He probably just doesn't like Mrs. Smith. Yeah. But there's thresholds and questionnaires that are in the DSM, the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual, that say if you meet enough criteria in enough settings, then then you do have ADHD. And it's pretty good. It's pretty good instrument right. to be able to know. Now, in terms of our technology, what's interesting is our technology is actually not an ADHD technology per se. So our whole theory is we call ourselves a functional medicine company, meaning we're not worried about any one disease classification. Mm. We're worried about the function of the brain wherever it shows up. 
And so our technology, our core platform called SSME, Selective Stimulus Management Engine, which comes out of UCSF, that is built to and designed to activate the attention networks in the brain. So it's not purposefully designed. It's not like specifically designed for kids with ADHD or adults with depression, but it seems in our clinical trials to have a similar effect in these various populations. So the reason it works for children with ADHD, and we are now running adolescent and adult studies in ADHD as well. The reason it works is, and how it works is that it's essentially measuring this weak link, which was a discovery out of UCSF, a weak link in attentional processing is the ability to pay attention to things, but also suppress things that are irrelevant to you. And the way we challenge that with our patented system is we're measuring you and we're giving you multiple things to pay attention to at every point in time. We're adapting that second by second. So a child, for instance, is driving an alien down a road. It feels like a fun and kind of crazy game. But what's happening is every single second, we're overloading that child right at their ability level, right at the threshold of their ability level with a lot of things to pay attention to and a lot of things to ignore. The second they're able to conquer that, we're adding more and it's just the algorithm within that within the game exactly within the game it gets more and more complicated and what that's doing this this iterative and adaptive system that's patented is essentially designed to every second of the experience put pressure on that part of the prefrontal cortex that kind of part of the brain that makes us human to put pressure on the part of the brain that has to do the hardest thing in attention Mm. which is pay attention to multiple things at once. So think about it like an analogy we use a lot is this is like really honing on a specific muscle, you know, the muscle that you need to curl your arm, you know, your bicep or whatever, but it's honing on that. And then it's, it's stimulating it to do one of the hardest things it has to do. And it's stepping that up ever so slightly every single minute of the experience. That's what it does. So a lay description of that is this is really meant to essentially activate the part of the brain controlling attention. So it works in ADHD. We validated it most robustly through five clinical trials in children with ADHD, but we've also seen pretty amazing results in, uh, it was just published to show adults with depression, same technology, different game interface. Mm. Uh, We're able to treat cognitive issues in the same types of cognitive issues in adults with depression. We've done it in adults with autoimmune disorders like multiple sclerosis. So the need we see in society is cognition across disease, and we're we're committed to bringing products that really can help across disease. So the idea is basically, say I have severe ADHD and I'm 10 years old and I start playing your game. What what that game is doing while I am playing it is kind of effectively, it's like strengthening this weak muscle, for lack of a better analogy, inside my brain that makes it very hard for me to pay attention to things, for example. That's well said. That's well said. There's We have uh, one of my favorite published trials with our technology looked at children when you ask them to pay attention to something and it you show them that something, a sign or, or pop something up on the screen for them. And um, it's measuring their electrical brain waves, EEG. Mm-hmm. So it's measuring their kind of bursts and amplitudes and in, in their brain patterns. And yeah, the way you said it is right. Children with ADHD and, and other children that have attention issues, but maybe don't classify as ADHD, that part of the brain is just not firing strongly and in a coordinated fashion. So what you just said, they're just not able to bring this part of the brain on. It's a quote unquote weak muscle. Yeah, It's not like, the kid doesn't want to. Right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's just a, it's a weak or underdeveloped or however you want to categorize it part of the system. So yeah, we're stimulating it 
And we see after a month in that published study, you can look at the kind of brain maps side by side, and we see now strong activation that starts to resemble what a neurotypical child looks like. That's at least in that one publication. So, Oh, wow. So after a month of gameplay, basically the muscle has gotten noticeably stronger. The neuro data show that the signature patterns yeah. um, have changed significantly. Exactly. Got you. And on the algorithmic piece, so while you're playing, the algorithm is receiving feedback from basically how well, quote unquote, or not I'm doing in the game, and then kind of brings in different stimuli or makes the game harder, so to speak, in terms of always kind of pushing right up against the limits of my capabilities at any given time. Is that how it works? Exactly right. Exactly right. Yeah, there's like a motor domain. You're like driving something continuously. And then there's decision making at, at every second of the mm. experience. And it's it's adapting both of those simultaneously. So uh, exactly right. It's measuring you all the time. Sometimes it's like a quick measurement, like how'd you do on that last trial? But we also embed like a full assessment in there, which can take five or seven minutes to really get a deeper snapshot of how you're doing. But so there's a couple different adaptive loops throughout the course of a month of treatment. But that's right. It's always trying to calibrate you and adapt you. The other interesting thing, and people know this about all conditions, but especially something like ADHD, cognition is really affected by things like how you sleep. What you eat. What you eat. Totally. You know, did you wake up excited? Are you stressed? <laughs> like these things change dramatically um, how you process information. So that's why adaptation is also needed. So the interesting thing about, you know, traditional medicine in this space is you take the same dose no matter what's going on, but you might be at a very different place. Yeah. What's cool about digital technology like Endeavor RX is it's assessing you every day continuously. So if you happen to wake up really sluggish because you only got five hours of sleep or you're a little sick, it's cool. It's going to adapt down to you and give you that type of personalized treatment on that day. Oh, interesting. So it's titrates according to how you're playing, basically. Exactly. exactly. Right, right, right. And I'm interested, you mentioned um, trials with people who suffer depression. So I understand the, th the, the, uh, the theory of like, okay, if I have ADHD, I have this like weak muscle, so to speak, that makes it hard for me to pay attention to things. What is the, is it the same kind of part of the brain that you're targeting that just has a different result because it's weak in a different way or what, how does it work in terms of depression? Yes. Um, so same technology targeting the same regions of the brain, trying to have a similar effect. What's my theory of cognition that we've now seen borne out is that because we're targeting the functional aspect of the disorder, meaning downstream of the cause, as long as the cause of the issue you know, the brain is a pretty redundant organ. So yeah. it compensates in similar ways, but it seems like it breaks in similar ways. And I hate to say, I would never say someone's brain is broken, but yeah, right, yeah. it it gets weakened or it has issues in similar ways. And so whether you see, you know, I'll use two very different examples. There's depression, but there's also even more different is something like multiple sclerosis, right? Mm -hmm. So compare ADHD and compare multiple sclerosis. ADHD is a kind of inherent condition. A lot of people are born with it. It's genetically passed. It is in many ways, there's a reward imbalance, like there's dopamine dysfunctioning. There's a lot of things like that. Multiple sclerosis, it's an autoimmune disorder. Like the body's immune cells are eating the neuron protective coatings. Yeah. Like these are, these could not be more different diseases. How they 
manifest functionally and cognition is extremely similar. Mm. So what MS patients cognitively talk about as their big, so they obviously have pain and walking issues, which is not something we would target. There are really great pharmacology treatments for that. But what, you know, a 40 year old woman with MS on average will say her issues are, I really have trouble paying attention. I get distracted extremely easily. Mm. If I step out into, you know, a uh, the real world outside my house and it happens to be a really busy or noisy environment, I can't even function. Sounds a lot like ADHD, right? Yeah. It's basically that the resulting functional impact of these two very different conditions from a cause perspective, they're resulting in something very similar. The point of what we do is we're strengthening that system independent of how it got there. That's the theory. And independent of almost the condition. In other words, like, you know, if you're strengthening the system a system that is quote unquote weak. And for me, it might mean ADHD for that person. It might be MS for the other person it might be depression. But if you're just kind of strengthening the muscles, generally, they're going to be able to cope better with whatever issue they're dealing with. Yeah, that's the that's the theory. And that's definitely our goal. Like, I don't think in some ways, it's a little bit of an unfortunate um, or a restrictive part of our medical system that we tend to think in these really narrow yeah. disorder or disease classifications. Sometimes that makes a lot of sense in something like what we do. I think there's a lot of ability to help across condition. And so we're, we're constantly working on how can we quickly get to as many of these conditions as possible because people really need it. Right. Right. I'm curious, what's the, so you've done all these clinical trials, which is not a small thing. I mean, it feels like most, most, treatments, whether they're pills or whatever it may be, they die somewhere along the clinical trial path. True. How was it though, interfacing with insurers, with payers? And I ask also because, you know, we, you know, a lot of our listeners are in the UK. Um, we have the NHS single payer system. And I'm just wondering if you have a sense of, you know, you talked to going back 10 years of people kind of laughing in your face and now you haven't presumably insurers paying for your video game. Some, 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 or maybe, <laughs> right, right. So I'd love to understand just kind of what that's like, especially when you looking beyond the States in places like the UK, and I don't know if you're looking there yet, but like where it's socialized medicine and you got to convince the one big payer. Right. This is definitely for this industry, this kind of prescription digital therapeutic industry. There's only, I think about seven products that are like EndeavorX, meaning that, well, there's EndeavorX is pretty unique, um, but there's no other video games, um, but there are seven products that are digital in nature. They're entirely software. They have an FDA label to treat some or all of a disease, and they can be prescribed. There's only seven of those in existence today here in the wow. U.S. Um, there's a bunch. There's a couple dozen more that are in development, um, and then there's many more behind it. So this is a massively quickly growing industry. The next important barrier, I'll call it, for patient access and adoption is insurers, without a yeah. doubt. So. We have about 5% of our prescriptions today are covered by insurance. So 5%, you know, exactly. Brutal. I like your intonation there. It's not zero. <laughs> so sometimes people want to celebrate, but I'm yeah. like 5% for a safe treatment that's approved by the FDA. That's crazy. Yeah. But this happens. It's very well known when, so drugs are treated as a very different class. Pharmacology is very different, but when with all new modalities that are not pharmacology, there's essentially no requirement for insurers to cover them until there is, until there's either legislation or until insurers finally adopt. I think it's crazy. I think a lot of people don't realize how much insurers dictate 
mm. what is actually given on the market as treatments, right? If an insurer, doctors know very clearly what treatments they can offer are actually covered by insurance for most of their patients or not. And it, of course, dictates what they're going to give their patients. For sure. And do you have a sense of, is this like, how much of this is about just getting an industry or the medical establishment kind of, you know, for lack of a better way to put it, to change its chip, to be like, okay, if it's either, mm-hmm. it's either a pill or nothing, basically, you know, but like these, this idea that you can have an app or a video game or whatever you want to call it that is built, let's say, for kind of this stimulus rich modern world in which we live that feels like right. it's just kind of like, you know, computer says no type response. <laughs> I, yes, I think it's the computer says no response, which I understand. Like these organizations are built to be conservative and they don't want to put every new cool shiny object on the market. Yeah. I'd say this is a little different. It's because FDA has gotten there, right? They, right. they force you to review clinical data. You have to have real clinical trials. FDA does deep review of the effectiveness and the safety doctors are getting there. So, you know, like I said, Endeavor X, we, we just recently launched, but we've even pre-launch, we saw prescriptions from all 50 states, a couple thousand docs have already started prescribing Endeavor RX. So doctors are getting there. Actually, very cool. It's an aside for this whole industry. Very cool data from American Medical Association that this year, about 10% of docs say they're using or consider using digital therapeutics. They asked them to project one year out what percent? Fifty percent of them said they would be using really? visual therapeutics with their patients in a year. So you're talking about possibly within a year going from a vast minority to like half of doctors comfortable with this. So doctors are getting there. I do think it's an education thing. Yeah. First. And so I think we're there. I think most insurers now know about these products. They're really thinking about it. You're starting to see some coverage is high mark, which is the big regional. It's like the fourth largest blues plan. It's in Pennsylvania. They put out a medical policy decision covering Endeavor RX and other digital therapeutics. So they're creating these policies, but it's happening one at a time. I think pretty soon it goes from everyone's educated. Now they've just got to do it. <laughs> yeah. And they've got to just do the work and create a policy and give access to their patients. I think pretty soon docs and patients are going to get pretty frustrated knowing that these products are out there. Awareness is high. They've seen them work and knowing insurance is still not covering. So I do think it'll come. It just might take some time. What does that look like financially, though? Because again, this ultimately often in medicine comes down to dollars and cents. And, you know, a prescription or, you know, I don't know what Endeavor costs and what it costs relative to Ritalin or some other kind of, you know, traditional therapy. And is the idea that this could replace, you know, those type of pharmacological interventions or is it additive? Is it, you know, what does that look like? Yeah, we priced Endeavor RX to be kind of dead center of what insurers and others will pay for drugs for ADHD, right? It is the standard of care. Behavioral therapy is in younger children, but like we said, it's not very accessible and that's crazy expensive. Yeah, yeah. Behavioral therapy can be like hun- sometimes hundreds of dollars per hour. Yeah. Um, so that's not really a good benchmark and we're not going there. <laughs> we wanted it to be affordable. So we're we're priced very similarly right on parity with medication. The idea here is this is a really flexible treatment. So we have data in our FDA label, clinical trial data showing in children on medication, it can have a strong effect. 
has a very similar effect in children off medication. So the point is this is not supposed to be a standalone treatment. It should be used along with whatever else a child is using, but that that could include medication. It might not. Right. Um, and so we know doctors are, and we have the data, doctors, some children can't take medication. Some patients have side effects they have to stop. This can be a really good treatment option along with whatever else doc is doing, you know, education, behavioral therapy, what have you. So so it's pretty flexible, and that's and I think from a cost perspective, it's not a huge burden to the payers. It's very similar to medication, so that's why I think that's it's like a when, not if. Um, but mm. you know, my my when is like it better be pretty soon because a, a lot of people need stuff, and they really only have one option today, and that's just not good for that's not good for anyone. And is it like exercise? Like once you, once I stop playing the game, like my muscles kind of get flabby. Oh, good question. So. That's some of the coolest data we have. So in one of our trials, it was a big study, it was over 200 kids, we saw there is a maintenance of benefit. So after you stop a month, you maintain benefits for on average, at least a month. But yes, it does start to slowly come back to baseline. So similar, if you worked out for like hardcore for a month or two mm-hmm. months, and then you stopped, you wouldn't wake up the next day and be where you were two months ago, right? You'd still be pretty fit. But over time, you'd you'd lose that. That's the that's the trend we see in some of our smaller studies. We've seen some people maintain, you know, and I couldn't I wouldn't claim this for the product because these yeah. are in like individual patient cases. But you can see multi months of maintenance, right? So you do a month of treatment and then potentially get you know more than one month of benefit after that. So it's it's really interesting because the paradigm of treatment of brain conditions with pharmacology tends to be chronic and always like you're on it, you're on it, you're on it. If you go off it for a day, you might have a problem. That's true in ADHD. It's true in depression. This is a very different type of treatment. You know, you use it for a month and then some of our highest prescribing docs prescribe it for a month and then they tell their patients, hey, take a break and then come back whenever it happens that you need more treatment. It might be a month, it might be longer. Right. So it's, it's, it's almost like a mind shift in um, how to think about these. They, are probably chronic treatments, but they're probably more intermittent than we're used to. Right. And a month, um, I know you say it's different per patient, but is there like a standard kind of like, you know, take two of these in the morning and two of these at night? Is it like play <laughs> 15 minutes a day every day for 30 days or something like that? Yeah, not every day, but yes. Um, it's There's a certain number of sessions and those take about 30 minutes. We wanted it to be designed to be, you know, similar to like most adults for their work can carve out 30 minutes. Most kids for their homework can carve out 30 minutes. Parents can help with that. So it's about 30 minutes a day, but five days a week. We we do not gotcha. have a requirement for every single day. So yeah, you could take time off. Life happens, no big deal. And that's, you know, we still see after two months in our trials, about 70% of kids are clinical responders. So um, right. considering very low side effects, you know, we think it's a great trade-off and we want people to be educated and, and, you know, put in the work. It's hard. The one thing about this treatment is this is not take two in the morning, take two at night. There's, this is different than the kind of pill phenomenon we have in this country, like take it and forget about it. Yeah. This takes work. You know, you got to commit to it. It's like learning an instrument maybe is the best analogy. You got to right, put right. in the work, but for most people, the, the results seems to be there um, if they can put in a little bit of work. And is it on like the iPad and all the kind of all the devices or is it, you know, an Xbox thing or is it everywhere? Oh, no, it's uh, it's mobile. Um, right, so, right, right. yeah, it's on I, it's on iPhones. That's the most common. It's on, of course, iOS. So it can go on iPads. 
it's pretty beautiful. It's a real video game. We had a real game design team right. uh, that works here at Achille. So it's beautiful on the big iPad. I've, I've, you know, popped it up on the big iPad. It's gorgeous. And it works on Android, not all Androids, but most. So we, it's hard to get the numbers, but we think we cover the vast majority of households um, with the device that they would already have in their home. That's really important to us. Got you. Um, and then lastly, just getting back to this idea around like kind of beyond. So obviously in the States, you have to kind of bring the insurers over. But when you think about expanding abroad, I see, I think you guys are doing a trial in Japan. Is that right? Right. Yeah. Um, and I can't remember, I don't know if they have socialized medicine, but I mean, the kind of the model, at least in the Western world, is socialized medicine. Have you looked at the UK or kind of those type of markets yet or how you might approach that? We have. So we actually have a CE mark for Europe, um, mm. So which would include, you know, so UK is included in the CE mark. We're, because we're focusing heavily here in, in our US launch, we're not, we don't yet have a timeline on kind of when and how we'll bring this to the UK or Europe more broadly. Um, we intend to at some point. So we have the we have the ability to do that. Um, it's a prescription product there, but we have not done any work. Candidly, we haven't done any work to launch or, or work with regulators or uh, rather insurers uh, with Nice there. And then yeah, Japan and more generally Asia, historically a part of the world that has lagged in terms of addressing some of these conditions. Right, yeah. there was a lot of stigma, of aversion to even talking about mental health. That's changing really dramatically. The interesting thing in many of those countries, Japan's a great example, is they're now diagnosing at a similar rate to here in the US for ADHD or, or for instance, in Europe, but much less pharmacological treatment. It's a culture where there's a, a lot more caution around going directly to pharmaceuticals. And so there might be a kind of shift in paradigm. Right, 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 we're right, in right. a uh, partnership with a pharmaceutical company there that we have a co-commercial partnership with. So that's in pivotal kind of last stage clinical trials. So we're crossing our fingers that that could bring to market there. So we could in not too distant future have approvals in the US, in Europe and in Japan. Um, and so we, you know, we're, we're pretty excited about the ability to go anywhere over the world and, and really scale this type of product. But those approvals, just so I understand, like a CE mark, which I don't I see the CE everywhere. I don't exactly know what that means. But if this is a prescription product, I can't like just download it from the app store and start using it. Correct. So CE Mark is a broader classification for lots of different products, but this is CE Mark as a prescription product here in I the see. US. This is an FDA right. approval as a prescription product. So yeah, you got to get it from a doctor. Most people have their own doc who can write the prescription. We do offer a telemedicine service where we can't guarantee a prescription because it ethically, you know, has to be right for the patient, but a third party doc, we can hook people up with and, and they can do the diagnosis or the treatment consult. So yeah, it's through a doctor. And I think that's important to, to really engage. Sometimes people have said, oh, is digital going to replace doctors? Is digital going to, and I think that's crazy. I think doctors play an important role, but the role, they don't have to play the role of like doing what machines can do. They can play the human role. So doctors prescribing this is great because then it allows them to have an ongoing conversation with their patient, which is what, you know, human doctors should be doing. Totally. You guys are public now. Right. How's that? <laughs> After 10 years of like working and kind of <laughs> anonymity and yeah. not having to give your quarterly, you know, <laughs> results and deal with investment analysts and big investors and blah, blah. I mean, I'm sure you've had to deal with big investors as a private company, but you know what I mean? 
Yeah, it's a different world for sure. Um, there's a lot more visibility and a lot more transparency. Luckily, we're an ethical company, so that doesn't bother us. It's just more work. It's a wild time to be a public company, right? I mean, we're in the middle of essentially a recession or something more chaotic. I'm not so sure. Yeah. Um, the stock markets are crazy. There's intense valuation pressure on companies big all the way down to tiny. So it is chaotic is probably a good word for it. But you know, we're excited. We have the capital. The reason we went public is to have the capital to really grow this business for the next few years commercially to really kind of establish that commercial model. And we have a vision of being a different type of medicine company. We want people to know our name. We want yeah. to interact with patients. We want to adapt. Our, we want to hear from them, customer service, adapt our products. They're digital. We can. And so we we want to be out there. We want to be, you know, a, a public face of this new type of medicine. So it's great, but we know it comes with some other things we got to deal with. So we just have to be careful. <laughs> totally. Um, well, it's funny. Uh, you said one thing. I was about to let you go, but you said one thing that just uh, piqued my interest, which yeah. is like, you know, it's a digital product, so you can change it, but it's already been FDA approved. So how does that work? Because that's, I think that's really interesting is that you can kind of be more agile than like, I mean, I, I don't know if it's, there's a, something similar to like just dosage. You could take more or less of a pill. No, no, it's very different. It's very different. Yeah. So um, I'm on the extreme here and I think this industry, but I think you have to change your product. I think if we don't hmm. adapt our products for patients, then we're essentially losing half of the benefit of this entire category of medicine in that it's digital and interactive. Right. So the way we did this with FDA is we specified very clearly what the active component of the device is, and we don't touch that. So the core algorithm that you know deploys the sensory and motor stimulus, that's untouched. But how it's delivered, the visuals, how it's adapted, um, is is able to change. And actually, the way we did this in our even in our clinical trials that led up to the FDA review there were personalized algorithms in there. And so what we were able to discuss with FDA is, look, every single patient in this trial actually got a different version of the algorithm because it was adapting. I see. It was almost like we had to do this with foresight. We had to think mm. about this with foresight, but we built in all the processes to be able to A, B test and then take data. And as a medical company, there's just a lot more burden on, we have to make sure that the changes we make are helping people and not hurting people. And so that's just a level of um, yeah. assessment and analysis that we have to do that your your typical tech company hasn't done. And you kind of wish they have because we've seen where that goes sometimes. Indeed. Well, look, I, I really appreciate you taking the time. It's I think it's totally fascinating. And I hope uh, 2023 is we do see that kind of that big leap you were talking about that doctors were talking about because I think it'd be um, pretty cool and f feels kind of as you say, necessary, given the times we are in and the stimulus to which we are exposed. Totally agree with you. Thanks for having me, man. No, no worries. And that is all the time we have. I want to thank Eddie for taking the time. I want to thank you all for listening. As ever, as I mentioned right at the top, thank you, thank you, thank you. We'll be back in 2023 with a whole slate of new fabulous, fabulous guests. So please tune back in. We'll be back, as I said, the first week of January. I am off uh, for the next couple weeks, as I mentioned, so I won't be showing up in the paper, but I'm looking forward to getting back and feeling fighting fit for the new year. So have a fabulous break. Thank you so much for listening, and we'll talk to you very soon. Bye-bye. <laughs>